seems almost impossible to live and work in our world today without having a CV, a resume, something that describes your achievements, your abilities, what you've done. Um, I'm sure it's fair to say that most of us have had at some time to produce a CV. Put your hand up if you ever kind of sat down in front of a blank computer and you've had to think, what, you know, who am I? What have I done? Put your hand up if you have. It's, it's, a, it's a frightening kind of prospect, isn't it? And, um, you know, perhaps uh, you rate yourself, perhaps you don't. Uh, that blank screen can um, be quite uh, difficult to look at for a while, then you kind of recall some things and you put them together and you read them all and it, and it can make you feel good about yourself and in many ways you should. Well, the Apostle Paul this morning, he's going to list his achievements. He's going to put before us his CV. But what's surprising as he does is that this is not something that he is proud of. Those achievements that he lists are things that his contemporaries, those around him, his mother, uh, his family would have been very proud of. But he's not. And we're going to see why this morning. So if you want to open up to Philippians chapter 3, we're going to firstly see that Paul comes from a good family. He's got the pedigree. He's got the pedigree there in verse 5. He tells us he was circumcised on the eighth day. Now, that doesn't sound like much to us, but for those who were Jews living outside of Jerusalem, many Jews uh, ceased the practice of circumcision because they were embarrassed about their ancestral heritage. But not Paul and not his family. He came from a faithful family, a good family, circumcised on the right day. And he was from the people of Israel, he tells us there in verse 5. That means he was literally from the race of Israel. It's not that Paul just, you know, belonged by association to Israel. He's saying he was born into the people of Israel. He was not an Israelite simply by belief, but by birth. He was not a Jew by conversion, but by conception. And his lineage goes back. His lineage goes back all the way to the tribe of Benjamin there in verse 5. Jacob was the head of Israel, and Jacob had 12 sons, and the last of those sons was Benjamin. And Benjamin was born in the Promised Land, so it was special to be from the tribe of Benjamin. And you can see that his family thought that it was special to be tri from the tribe of Benjamin because the first king of Israel, Saul, was from the tribe of Benjamin. And Saul was Paul's given Hebrew name. So he comes from his great, impeccable family, a faithful family that taught him the ancestral traditions. They taught him their own language there in verse 5. He says he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. And that doesn't mean that he just comes from the Hebrews. He does, but he's already said that. It means that he, he spoke the language of the Hebrews. Now, some of us come from migrant families, and sometimes it doesn't take long for the language of our heritage to be lost. Um, sometimes, how many generations do you think, on average, when you come to Australia? Maybe one, two? Very unusual for a family to continue speaking the language, language that they brought to this country after three generations. Do you think that's fair? Well, Paul had, had 
his family had kept this language for hundreds of years. He'd been taught this precious, sacred language. And so he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He had impeccable pedigree. Everyone would have agreed. His background was amazing. But it wasn't just his background. No. He goes on to tell us how he performed. He was born with great expectation, but he didn't just stay there. We find there at the end of verse 5 some of his personal achievements. The first one there is he was a Pharisee. As the law, a Pharisee. Pharisees were respected members of the community. They were popular and they were admired. And the word Pharisee means separated one. Pharisees were passionate about God's law and God's people and the purity of God's law and God's people. And so Paul moved. He moved from Tarsus, which is um, in the north, outside of Jerusalem, um, quite a secular city, quite a modern city in the ancient world, progressive city, uh, where he studied. And so it's the equivalent of him studying in America at Harvard. It's known as a university town. And he moves to Jerusalem. He moves back to the homeland. He moves to the equivalent of Oxford University. And he puts himself uh, through university there under Gamaliel, who was considered the best teacher of the tradition of the Pharisees. And so Paul studied under the best. He didn't only study under the best, but he followed all of the law of Moses. In fact, he followed more than just the law of Moses. He followed the traditions of the Pharisees that protected the law of Moses. Hundreds and hundreds of interpretations of the law. He was passionate about the purity of the law and the purity of God's people. And anybody who would endanger the purity of his people and the purity of the law, he was willing to take a sword up, either literally or legally, to make sure that they were put to death. There in verse 6, as to zeal, persecutor of the church. And what we think would have been awful and atrocious, someone who used their the intellect and perhaps even their muscles to execute a persecuted minority, you know, we would think of that as atrocious. In his day, that would have been commendable, honourable. His mum would have been so proud, she would have been telling all her friends over tea about how many people Paul had put to death. And he wasn't just a blatant hypocrite. Often we think of Pharisees as hypocrites, and Jesus does address their hypocrisy, and there was widespread hypocrisy within the Pharisaic tradition. But for Paul, he was no he was no hypocrite. He didn't just teach the law and then act in a different way. It says there in verse six, he was blameless, faultless. And if anyone met the standards, Paul did. And so by Paul's own accounting and of the standards of his day, he was faultless. He's not being, I don't think he's being tricky here, um, or hyperbolic, exaggerating. Uh, one scholar, New Testament scholar, F.F. F. Bruce, very well respected, says this. He says, if orthodox pedigree and upbringing, followed by high personal achievement, and high, sorry, followed by high personal obtainment in the religious realm, ensured a good standing in the presence of God, Paul had no need to fear competition. By any standards of the day, if you look at Paul, his resume was 
out of this world. It was fantastic. It was incredible. It was something that people would have envied. And yet, here is a crazy thing. There in verse 7 and 8, what does he do with that resume? What does he do with that background, that religious legacy, that heritage, and all that performance? He says there, he throws it all away. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider them loss. They say, I have lost all things and I consider them garbage, rubbish. He considered them refuse. Not recycling, not things to kind of be brought back and tidied and prettied up a bit. No, things to chuck out. Red bin, orange bin, not yellow bin. Why? Well, he says, for the sake of Christ, verse 7. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, verse 8, that I might gain Christ. Must be something about Jesus for Paul to take everything that he's worked for, to take all the legacy of his family tradition, and take that and put it in a bin. Why? Well, Jesus had invaded Paul's life, and he'd come to realise that the standards of measurement that had governed his life were overturned. They were overturned by the Son of God. Every standard of measurement in his life, when Jesus came into his life, was totally reordered and it forced him to reevaluate, to reevaluate everything about himself, everything that he had learned, everything about his family, everything that he had done. This is what the gospel does. Not just for Paul, but also for us. The gospel actually forces us, in fact, it frees us to be able to look at ourselves plainly and to look at ourselves not in the light of the measures of this world, but of different measures. Have a look there in verse 7. But whatever were gains to me, I, can, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ in Paul's life exposed the deep flaws of his assessment of himself and the whole system of measurement. One of the ways that we know this is because he lists his persecution to the church here as one of his achievements. Later on in Galatians chapter 1 and 1 Corinthians 15, those things, the way in which he took a sword up against the people of God, those things he's deeply ashamed of. They fill him with deep regret. They were things once that he gloried in, once that things that he looked at to feel good about himself. He says there in verse 7 whatever was gain, whatever <clears throat> Jewish pedigree, whatever the faithfulness of his household, whatever the knowledge of the Jewish language, whatever his achievements under Pharisaic tradition of the law. Paul's standards had changed. And Paul's standards are not our standards. It doesn't really matter to us what languages that we can speak. They're not things that are gloried in. We have our own standards. Uh, you know, it's nice to come from a good family, uh, particularly if your parents are educated. It gives you economic Ability, 
In some places, it gives you some sense of religious standing if you come from a good family. So we have our pedigrees, and we value the kind of performance and personal, personal achievement. We give kids you know, little stars at Sunday school for remembering Bible verses. We have our standards. We have our pedigrees. But Paul goes on because it's not just the religious uh, personal, it's not just religious or personal standards that he has to re-evaluate. It's in fact everything. He goes on to say that whatever I count as gain, verse 7, he's up in the ante there in verse 8, I consider everything a loss for the sake of knowing Christ. All realms of life. The religious and the division is <clears throat> not so much the case in Paul's life, but for us, the religious and the secular. We live in a highly commercialised and mediated world. It seems like everything in our lives now is a commodity to be sold. Uh, you know, have you heard the phrase in the last five years, how, how can this be monetized? We live our lives mediated. They're mediated through a screen, through the online. And we start to see our lives through the online. In fact, we start to see ourselves through the online. And so what we've done is we've mediated and we've commercialised our lives. And when you put those two things together, it's a dangerous, dangerous com uh, combination. Because our lives are lived before the world. You know, 20 years ago, maybe a bit longer, 30 years ago, you know, when you first got your bike, you do a trick on your bike in the backyard. Who did you have to show? Well, usually it was your mum. You go and ask your mum, Mum, come and, come and see, have a look at the trick that I've done on my bike. And your mum says, oh, that's fantastic. But now, because we record everything, put it all up online, who's that kid do the trick for? It's not just their mum. It's the whole world. And what if, what if, what if a lot of people like the kid doing the trick? Well, actually, you can make some money out of it. We've mediated and we've commercialised our world and we live our lives in this way. We speak about relational capital, the people that we know. And that does something, it changes us. It shapes us. And so there's this pressure that's put on us by not just our family, but indeed by the whole entire world. There's pressure put on us by not just making a certain amount of money, but by making more money. Mediate, commercialised lives. And so even for us in the church, we take on the way of the world and the way that the world assesses itself and the way in which we prove ourselves through mediation and through commercialisation. But the Gospel of the Lord Jesus overturns all this. See, how does Paul think about his former life? He thinks about it as a loss. He doesn't say it's a zero. He says it's a minus. It's not merely neutral, but in fact detrimental. And that's bizarre. Why would he say that? Well, think about where it got him. Think about what all that striving, all that intellect, all that passion, all that family culture, where did it get him? We've got him on the road to Damascus, hell-bent on the execution of Christians. His very pursuit of the law, the very thing that he thought was making him 
approved before God was the very thing drawing God's displeasure. He thought it was making him a friend of God, but it was making him God's enemy. And so how do you, how do we evaluate our resume? Because there are many things that we hold on to. Things that aren't bad in themselves, but are they things that advance our relationship with God? Things that we hold on to to feel good about ourselves. Are they some of the things that in fact prevent us from getting to know God? For Paul, they are rubbish. And rubbish here is an aggressive term. It's an impolite term. It's a term you wouldn't use in front of your mother. There's a sense of repulsion here when Paul uses the word rubbish. It's offensive. It's It's a vulgar word for excrement. Crash. Crass. An emotional jolting because Paul just wants to distance himself from all the things that he used to feel good about himself, to pursue God. Those things he can't have a part of. Why? Well, as Paul looked at the life of the Lord Jesus, he saw this teacher. He saw this teacher who was executed, killed, hung on a tree and therefore cursed by God. But God, in the power of his Holy Spirit, raised the Lord Jesus from the dead. And so Paul is confronted on that road to Damascus with the resurrected Lord Jesus, with the very one that he thought was dead and cursed, is now alive and glorified. And the whole direction of his life is changed. And so how do you evaluate life? Nothing wrong with our achievements, the good things that we do, what we do in work and career for our families and from the families that we come from. But sometimes it's not the blatant sins that keep us from God. Sometimes, as one theologian puts it, it's the damnable good works that keep us from God, those things that we think we're doing for God's approval. But actually, taking us away from God. In fact, what we often do is we we have these piles, I think, in our heads. We, we pile up our sin. Know that sin isn't a popular word, but it's a reality in our lives. Because we know that there are things that we're deeply ashamed of. Things that we've said, done, or thought. Things that we've done in public or in private. And so we've got this, this part of us that becomes this pile, this weight, And it's heavy. It's heavy. And so what we do is we we marshal up the the so-called better side of ourselves. We want to counterbalance with the good things that we do. Where we're from. And so we stack up these piles in our mind, in our hearts. We stack up these piles, things that we've done that are wrong, sinful, things that we think are good. What's the Apostle Paul doing? Apostle Paul here is not just running away from his sin. He's running away from his good achievements too. And often what we do is we we bring what we think is our achievements, our spiritual achievements, what we're doing for God, and we bring them to Jesus and we say, look, look God, what I'm doing for you. Can you see? Have you noticed? 
But the Apostle Paul here, he's running from both. He's running from both. Verse 8, he considers all things, all things lost. He's ripping himself away from his past. And he says there in verse 8 that this is a form of suffering. Why would he do that? Well, he does it for the sake of Christ, that he might gain Christ, verse 8. Because whatever he's achieved, whatever he's done, there is something, something so much better in the Lord Jesus. And to be honest, it's often hard to see. Our world tells us what's amazing and reinforces to us every single day of what's of value, of what's important. Sometimes it's hard to see just how precious, just how amazing Jesus is. And so we pile these achievements that we have. But Jesus is more valuable. He's more valuable than what we would do and what we have done. See, to say that... um, Paul rips himself away from his past life is is probably a mistake because it implies that it was a deliberate decision. Paul says there in verse 8, he has suffered the loss of all things. It's in a passive tense. So it's not as if that Paul, you know, just on that road to Damascus had a moment of just wonderful self-insight. No, he didn't get rid of it. It was ripped away from him. It was a result of meeting the Lord Jesus. It's not as if the Apostle Paul was after the Lord Jesus on that road. No, he was after the death of the Lord Jesus' people. And this is what the Bible calls grace. Because we're like the Apostle Paul. We're not on the road to Jesus. We're on the road away from him. And if you've become a Christian, the Lord Jesus has grabbed you has invaded your life and has turned it around and we all resist it. We resist it initially. Perhaps you're thinking of becoming a Christian and we resist Christ coming into our lives. We resist it because that grace, that profound grace changes us and change is painful. And what if we're to get... I mean, it's one thing to get rid of our guilt, but what if we're to get rid of our achievements? Who are we before God if we don't have our achievements? That's the Christian. Absolutely naked. Bereft of anything that we might have done. Bereft of what the world would tell us is amazing about ourselves. We can actually come to God, putting aside everything that we've done, both good and bad. And if we do... Lord Jesus will not cast us away. He will call us to himself. And so do you know that pain? Do you know the pain of that loss? Have you experienced the sovereign God coming into your life and ripping your resume away? Ripping all the things that you think you feel good about yourself in? Ripping it away and throwing it into the fire of his love. And can you say it was all worth it? The gospel doesn't just help us to reevaluate our past, but it redirects our devotion, secondly. 
there in verse 8. Paul's life had been solely focused on knowing and promoting the Torah law. This drove his life. This is the engine that ran him. And now it's devoted to something else. It's not the law in itself is not driving Paul, but someone is. It's knowing Jesus. And he says there in verse 9, he wants to know Christ or is to be found in Christ, verse 9, to be found in him. See, Paul's life was about knowing Christ. And firstly, to know Christ is to be found in him. When we are caught up in Christ, we are caught up in his righteousness, not from the law, but through faith in Christ. Paul is contrasting the way of his former life, a righteousness pursued by his own efforts, by law-keeping. But he rejects that. And there is another righteousness that doesn't come from himself. There's another righteousness that comes from God that depends on faith. In fact, the faithfulness of Christ. An alien righteousness, something from outside Paul, has come into his life. The Lord Jesus. And when the Lord Jesus comes into our life, it, it changes things. See, there are two ways we can approach God. We can approach God based on our achievements, where we're trying to justify our existence. And I believe whether we're Christian or not, religious or not, everyone is doing that in some way. That's why we live frantic lives. Because deep down inside, we are trying to justify ourselves, to know that we're good about ourselves. We can come to God in that way. Or we can come to God in the way that he establishes, where it's not about striving. It's not about our performance. It's about receiving. In fact, this second way, this way of the gospel, puts all striving to an end. And it gives us a different way of seeing ourselves, a different measure, a different standard, a different mirror, a standard that's not from this world, a standard that's not of our own creation, a mirror in which we see not the lines and blemishes, a mirror in which we don't see the salaries and the degrees, a mirror in which, see, in which we see a beautiful creature of Christ's own faithfulness, gifted by his total commitment unto death. And on whom God says, you are very good because of Christ's love. See, to know Christ is to be found in Christ. It also is to experience Christ. There in verse 10, Paul says he wants to know Christ and to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings. This is what's on offer to us. The very power, Paul says, that raised the corpse of the Lord Jesus from death to life, Paul says in verse 10, is, is available to the Christian person. And so do you want that power when you're downcast, when you're disappointed, when you're exhausted, when you're tempted, when you're wronged? How do you find this power? Well, you notice there that the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, those two things are connected. You can only know the power of the resurrection under the experience of suffering. To know a power that brings life out of death means you must know death. And to know a power that brings strength out of weakness means that you must know weakness. 
And so the Christian gospel is not that you will not go through suffering. But the Christian gospel is that when you do go through suffering and when you are weak, there is a power available, a power so strong that raises the dead. It's at work in suffering, in weakness and in loss. And finally, Paul, to know Christ, is not just to be found in him, it's not just to be empowered by him, it's to be like him in his death. Verse 10, becoming like him in death. When Christ died, Christ died in the powers of sin and death. The powers and the standards of the flesh. To become him, to become like him in death means that those powers of sin and death no longer dictate and determine our lives. The world is not how we judge ourselves or others. It's not the old standards, the standards of circumcision and uncircumcision. It's not the standards of our world by what you see, what's mediated and what's commercialised. No, we use another standard. The standard of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That standard where every person, every person is created in the image of God with immense potential. But at the same time, where every person is a sinner, enslaved to sin and need and in need of rescue. And so when we become like him in death, we, uh, we die. We die to sin. And we are controlled in a new way, controlled by a new means, controlled by the Spirit, controlled by a future of resurrection, verse 11, that we will one day obtain. May, may God invade all our lives with the gift of Amen. Please stand as we sing.